with our hearts leaning in towards what you have to say, dear Father, with our ears prick by your word once again, with our hearts laid bare at your feet to learn again from our Lord Jesus. Father, as we come before you in these holy moments, Father, your words will not mean anything unless your Holy Spirit does its work, his work in our hearts. So, Father, we offer the next few moments to you. We consecrate them again to your Son and to the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, speak again to your people, for we desperately cry out to you. Father, we lean in to learn from you. Speak, O Lord Jesus, through your holy scriptures again. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 1928, Adolf Hitler was a nobody in the political scene. Five years later, his Nazi party won 37% of the vote in Germany. A few months later, Hitler had the whole of Germany in his hands. Why was Hitler such a successful leader in such a short period of time? Well, there are many reasons, of course. But one of them is that Hitler was such a successful leader was because he was a go-getter. He was a leader that got things done. He was a doer. He was a go-getter. He was a goal-driven. He was passionate. And he got things done his way. He had all the leadership qualities that John Maxwell would rave about. You see, prior to uh, Hitler becoming uh, one of the most successful men in Germany, Germany had gone through an economic crisis. Banks had closed down, people had lost their jobs, young people, especially youth, were wandering along the streets, aimless, without jobs, and doing all kinds of mischief. But when Hitler came into power, he actually made life in Germany hopeful and fun again. He took many of the delinquent and jobless teenagers and made them join the Hitler Youth, an organization that would later serve Hitler's evil schemes. But nevertheless, Hitler offered for these young men jobs and a lifestyle that made them more disciplined and confident. Hitler himself also brought fun into Germany. Did you know that Hitler set up one of the biggest movie producing industry in Germany. Though he used these movies to promote his ideology and his racism, he did bring enjoyment and entertainment to the society. In fact, two years before World War II, Germany hosted the Olympic Games. In a time when the Germans had lost faith in themselves and they had been feeling so despondent, thinking that they had been looked down by every nation on earth, the Olympic Games brought joy and, and uh, confidence again back to the country when the Germans saw how the nations flocked to, to, to Berlin for the Olympic Games and how the Olympic Games for the first time in history was televised and they were again at the center of the globe. And all of this happened during the time when Hitler was in leadership. Another aspect of Hitler's leadership has been that uh, he understands the gospel. 
This is a point that Roland Bohr, uh, an Old Testament scholar, has been trying to argue. Hitler himself knows that human beings have been plagued by sins, by the sin of failure, by the sin of shame, and sin needs to be atoned for. Adolf Hitler knew the gospel, but unfortunately, the sacrificial lamb, according to Hitler, to take away the sins of the world is not Jesus. But for Hitler, the sacrificial lamb were, the lambs were the, the Jews, the homosexuals, and the handicapped. He got all of them sacrificed to take away the sins of his people. Hitler knew the gospel but did not know the true Savior. In short, Hitler, though evil, had great leadership skills. He was a savior of the German people, not only economically, but also socially, and also in a sense, spiritually. King Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Daniel, though evil, also had great leadership skills. The book of Daniel starts off in Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's leadership dream. What was the, the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon? If you remember in chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, uh, then the book of Daniel begins this way. In the third year during the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with the articles from the temple of God. Then he carried off the, to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in, in the treasure house of his God. The, the Hebrew word here in verse 2, that, that's translated here as, as Babylon, in the original Hebrew, actually is Shina. Shina is the... Uh, ancient name for Babylon. It's very important because in Genesis chapter 11, the people of Shina decided to rebel against God. And what did they do? They built a tower that reaches the heavens. Many years later, King Nebuchadnezzar also followed in the footsteps of his ancestors. Instead of building a huge tower that reaches the heavens, what does he do in chapter 3 of Daniel? He built a statue of himself, a golden statue that was tall, that was huge, that almost reached the heavens for himself. King Nebuchadnezzar, like Hitler, was a man of great leadership skills. He wanted to get something done, he got it done. He wants to build a statue, he has it done. He wanted people from all over the empire to come and bound on his statue. He gets it done. I mean, this is a, a, a great man of great leadership skill. He was a go-getter. He was passionate. He was driven. He was a leader. And he gets things done. Now, what about God? In chapter 3, verse 44, God in his dream reveals that he is going to destroy all the kingdoms of the earth by knocking down King Nebuchadnezzar's golden, uh, by knocking down a, a statue and uh, that represents the kingdoms of the world. And what will God do? God will set up his own mountain. What mountain? 
God, you must have to failed your geography exam. Babylon is pretty much a flatland area. Where are you going to build your mountain? God, are you a charlatan? What, what are you going to do? You're building a mountain? Are you just making promises but not delivering them? God, are you just an empty vessel making noises, a pie in the sky type of a dreamer, a good-for-nothing talker? I mean, where in the book of Daniel does God ever build his mountain? Once I invited a restaurant owner to church. Do you know what he said to me? Christianity is only for dreamers, he said. If, you, if I were to go to church, who will ever put food on my table? Who will ever pay my mortgage? Who will pay for my employees' wages? What will God do? All your God does is make promises, but when does He ever deliver? Nebuchadnezzar makes promises. He wants to be the greatest king on earth. He wants to be uh, like the Tower of Babel during the pe people at the time. To have the nations come to worship him. That he will build the greatest statue for himself. Just like the Tower of Babel reaches the skies and he gets it done. He was a good leader in that sense. But what about God? How does God lead? Two ways that God leads and how God's leadership is different. Number one, God leads by allowing us to go through the furnace. God leads by allowing us to go through the furnace. When Daniel's three friends refused to bow to the king's golden statue, the king here ordered them to be thrown into a fiery furnace. But it was not just any furnace that these three friends were being thrown in. The Bible tells us that this furnace was heated seven times hotter than usual. And the king got the strongest man to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before throwing them into the fire. So let's look at Daniel chapter 3, our text for this morning. Daniel chapter 3 verse 16. The Bible says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if He does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. To throw somebody into a, fire, into a fiery furnace is one of the most cruelest forms of punishment in the ancient world. This is why throughout the book, uh, throughout the Old Testament, God has never dreamed of punishing His own covenantal people by throwing them into a fiery furnace. And this is why in the book of Jeremiah, for instance, when some of the ancient kings were throwing their own children into the fire, what was God's response? God himself was horrified because it was one of the most cruel punishment to throw somebody who is kicking and breathing into a fiery furnace. This is why the prophet Jeremiah, God says in the, in the prophet Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 31, They have built high places in Topheth, in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. 
something I did not command. Even God would not command his own children to throw their own offspring into the fire. Something I did not command nor entered my mind. It's never entered God's own mind that he would throw living human beings into the fire. A punishment that God had never meted out for his uh, covenantal people. Yet God allowed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to be thrown into such cruelty. Not because God is a sadist and enjoys to see us suffer. No, no, no. He does this because only the fire from the furnace would open our hands from clinging on to ourselves and the idols of this world. And that's what God is doing here. God allowed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be thrown into this fiery furnace that was seven times hotter than usual. And they were tied by the strongest men and thrown into this fire. Not because God is a sadist, but it's a very simple fact that God loves us so much that He wants us to cling on to Him. But we will never cling on to Him because our hands are so tightly wound up in ourselves and the idols of this world that it takes the fire from a fiery furnace to open up our hands that we may cling on to Him. That's how God leads. God often leads by allowing us to go into the fire. My brothers and sisters, there are furnaces in our future. If you follow after Jesus, you can be guaranteed that there will be fiery furnaces in our future. Do not fear when we go through them, because they are God's blessings to us to open our hands to pry open our hands so that we cling not to ourselves and the things of this world that we cherish, but our hands will be on Him when we go through the fire. This is how God leads. Charles Simeon was a man who knew about fiery furnaces. He was a pastor for 54 years at Trinity Church in England. His church hated him. In fact, the church didn't want Charles Simeon to be their pastor. They wanted someone, an assistant pastor, to be the lead pastor instead. But, so when Simeon came to become the pastor, the church members hated him. He was not allowed to preach in the afternoon, the second service, each Sunday. They would not allow Simeon to preach. Instead, they allowed the assistant pastor to preach. And Simeon was able to preach in the morning services. But the church members did something really naughty to Charles Simeon. They locked up the pews so that no one could sit in them. Simeon had to have chairs placed along the aisle so that people could sit in them. But when the church warden saw the chairs, they took the chairs and threw them into the dumpster when Simeon was not looking. When Charles Simeon tried to visit his church members house to house, no one would open a door to him. And this situation lasted for not one year, but ten years. 
There was even an instance when a bunch of students wanted to hated Simeon so much that they wanted to beat him up. So they were, they, they were hiding along the streets, waiting for Simeon to come out of the church and walk home. And they were thinking about assaulting him and beating him up in those isolated streets. But by God's providence, that Sunday, Simeon took a different route home and was not assaulted by these young men. Charles Simeon never got married. He was celibate all his life. That means that during the nights when he was being heavily criticized and persecuted by church members, he had no one there to comfort him. He suffered through lots and lots of fiery furnaces throughout his 54 years of ministry in that one church. When Charles Simeon was 71 years old, someone asked him to summarize his ministry. And Charles Simeon had this to say, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. We must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. Charles Simeon, you suffered not just a little, you suffered for all these years and then you don't mind it. Charles Simeon said, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. Why? Because it's the fires of the furnace that will pry open our hands so that we can cling to our Savior and allow Him to lead us. Hitler and King Nebuchadnezzar led by force and by pride, but our Savior leads through the furnace. Secondly, how does God lead? God only leads by leading us through, allowing us to walk through the furnace. But secondly, God leads by peering in the furnace. God leads by peering in the furnace. After the three friends were being thrown into the fire, something miraculous happened. Let's look at the text. Let's find out what this miraculous thing happened. Let's look at verse 24 of chapter 3 of Daniel. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisor, Won't there three men that we tied and thrown into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. So after the three friends had been thrown into the fire, this is what the king said. Then verse 25. The king said, Look, I see four men walking in the fire unbound and unharmed, and the fourth man looked like the sons, like the son of the gods. There was a fourth man in the fire, looked like the sons, the son of the gods. But that's not all. Let's look at verse 26. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, not a hair of the head was singed, the ropes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Not only did these three friends survive through the burning hot furnace, but there was another fourth man in the fire who looked like the son of the gods. And not only that, they were unbound. They were walking freely in the fire. And when they came out, their clothes and their hair and their body, 
did not burn. What is God trying to teach us here in this very strange, miraculous event? Remember in chapter 2, God himself had a plan to. God himself was a leader and had a plan. God wanted to destroy the kingdoms of the earth and he wants to set up his own mountain. Remember the first time when Moses ascended the mountain of the Lord in Exodus chapter 3. When actually Moses went up the mountain of the Lord, what did Moses see at the mountain of the Lord? Exodus chapter 3 verse 2 at Mount Horeb. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames from a fire in the burning bush. And Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. When Moses was on top of God's mountain, he saw a bush that was on fire, but the fire did not burn up the bush. The same way Daniel's three friends were in the flames, but they did not burn up. And just as the leaves and the branches of the bush did not burn, Daniel's uh, friends' uh, bodies, hair, robes did not burn. What is God teaching us? The same God behind the burning bush is the same God that was in the furnace with Daniel's friends. But what is more important? God's dream and God's vision is already coming true. God wanted in chapter 2 to build his mountain in Babylon. His mountain has arrived. Just as Moses, when he was on the mountain of the Lord, saw the burning bush, here in Babylon, we see again three men that were not Three men in a burning fire, but they were not burnt. What is God doing here? God himself is not a charlatan. When he makes promises, he fulfills them. He is serious about bringing his dreams and his vision to pass. And he does it through his people when they allow themselves to walk with him through the fire. But there is a one other detail I want you to see from the text. When God appeared in the furnace, he appears as a son of the gods. He appears as a human being. The expression son of the gods is going to appear itself another three more times in chapter 7. And by the New Testament usage of this phrase, we can quite confidently say it refers to Jesus pre-incarnate. So what is God saying here? When God appears in the furnace, He appears as a human being. Is that significant? In the book of Daniel, all the world's leaders are represented as animals. Only God is portrayed as a human being. God is not a beast that he cannot understand our pain in the furnace. He weeps with us. God isn't like a dog who has no understanding about the complexities of our anxieties. He understands. God isn't like a cat who runs away when the tension rises. God isn't like an animal. He is a 
human being that walks with his people in the fire. And that is why Jesus is not only just fully God, but he is fully man. He understands, he stays, he fights for us that our bodies, that our hair, that our robes will not burned in the fire. And this is the kind of God that leads us. This is the leader that leads us, that comes into the fire to lead us out. And he comes as a human being with emotions, with feelings, with the tenacity to stay and the understanding that can overwhelm our thoughts. 18 years ago, true story, Andy and his wife traveled to South America to adopt their first little girl. At the time, the country was gripped by corruption, violence, and political chaos. Now, after Andy arrived, the people that were trying to offer adoption of this child were trying to raise the price of the adoption. And Andy was there, and he was, uh, he was, and he threatened the people that if you try to uh, change the price again, that he would report this matter to the U.S. consulate. And just as he was trying to negotiate the price of the adoption, a mysterious figure came into the room. And the mysterious figure said to Andy and warned him that if he were to report this to the U.S. consulate, there will be terrible and dire consequences. Andy at the time was shaking with fear during the negotiation, but yet he stayed and he began and continued on to negotiate for his daughter. But the odd thing is that at this time, Andy had never met his adopted girl before. She was just a small, helpless baby. She had not even won any awards. She has not even been to school. She doesn't even know how to read and write. She doesn't even play any instruments at the time. She did not even know how to talk at the time. She was just a little baby. But for whatever reason, Andy stood his ground and continued to negotiate with the people. Even though his life was threatened, even though he was shaking in fear, he just stayed on, negotiating the corrupt officials, spending oodles of money, squandering away time, and even risking his life in order to find the girl that he and his wife were wanting to adopt. And I think that's a picture of how God sees us. We may walk through and God may allow us to walk through the furnace the most, most difficult times. God is not an unfeeling beast that comes beside us just to howl at us. But He comes as fully God, through Jesus, fully God and fully man. Totally understanding our situation, staying with us, fighting with us in those moments to rescue us. Rescue us and to bring us to safety. And the most powerful evidence of his rescue is in the cross. When he would stay with us even when we abandon him and bring us out of sin and slavery by dying for us on the cross. So let's come to Jesus this morning. 
and let's pour our hearts before him. If you're walking through a fiery furnace, praise God. Because that's often how God leads us. We are not spared from the fiery furnaces of this world. In fact, we will walk and there will be one. If you're not walking through one, there will be one in your near future, my dear brother, my dear sister. But in those times, we see him. He is the fourth man and the fire. And he will lead us out. By his blood, by the cross, and by his sacrifice. Let's lean on him. Let's allow him to lead us. Lord Jesus, lead us to yourself. Father, we come before you this morning with our hearts bare before you. Lead us to yourself. For those of us who are walking through the furnaces of life, when we're feeling the heat, when we are bound and so tied up, we're being thrown into this unthinkable form of suffering that God would not even dare think about. But yet you are with us. Because where you are is holy ground. It's your holy mountain. We are in your presence where you are. That's where your holy mountain is. And you will lead your people. Just as you promised Moses all those years ago. That even if he were to walk into the fires of the slaveries of Egypt. You are with him. And you are with us. So Father we thank you for this beautiful passage of scripture that reminds us again that you will lead us. And we thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the greatest evidence that you have led us out of the furnace of sin and hell and death. So help us once again to trust in you. Our lives are in your hands. And so, Father, we again bow before you and give our lives afresh and anew to you. Take all of us, pry our hands from the idols of this world that we may cling to Jesus, the fourth Son of Man, the Son of the living God, in the fire. In his name we pray.